Father, thank you for the gift of your church. Thank you for the gift of your word. This morning, we come here to hear a word from your son, Jesus. And we know that when we listen to Jesus, it's not just us learning facts about you and your gospel, but that you send your spirit to change us and show us more of you and draw us ever more into love with you. So we pray expectantly that you send your spirit. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay. So, let's get into the sermon. Like I said, we're going to be covering Luke 8, 4 through 15, which is Jesus' first parable, the parable of the sower. And here's my plan, our outline. I'm going to set up the parable. Then I'm going to read the parable. Then I'm going to talk about the one main secret in the parable. Remember what Jesus called his parables. He said these are the secrets of the kingdom or the mysteries of the kingdom, which is a great sermon series. These are the mysteries of the kingdom. And I want to set up the parable, read it, and then talk about the one mystery of the kingdom revealed in the parable of the sower. That's our plan. So here we go. To set up the parable of the sower, the best way to do this is for us all to put on our first century Jewish shoes. Everyone pretend to be a first century Jew. Really get in character with me as a first century Jew. If we all now are first century Jews, that means you think of yourself as having a job, something you're like a seamstress or you're a fisherman, you're a vine dresser, you're a farmer. You work hard, long hours out in the sun. You have calluses on your hand. You go to bed tired every night. You, as first century Jews, have that kind of job. And you are completely owned by the Romans. The Romans tax the vast majority of what you make. The money you make or what you make in your shop or the fish you catch or the grapes you grow, the vast majority of it is taxed by the Romans. That's our situation now as first century Jews uh, because first century Israel was in hopeless debt to Rome. Some historians have even kind of done the math that if every Jew in first century Israel piled all of their money and all of their gold and all of their heirlooms and all of their goats and they got all of the money from the temple and they put it in a big pile and gave it to Caesar, they would still be in debt. That is how much in debt Israel is to Rome. In fact, there were some first century Jews, you can think of yourself as this kind of first century Jew, who lived on their family farm. The family farm that people have been raising generations of kids up in for five, six generations. They live on their family farm, but you are in so much debt to the Romans that you actually have to sell your family farm to the Romans. And that doesn't get you out of debt. So then you have to sell yourself into slavery to the Romans. And now you work as a slave on your family farm. There were many first century Jews in that position where they worked as a slave on their own family's vineyard. Put yourself in that situation. That's the kind of first century Jews we all are. But not only that, as first century Jews, you also have a very important part of your life, which is the ritual of going to synagogue every Saturday. Once every seven days, you go and meet with other Jews, and you all collectively remember the seventh day of creation. That's why you meet on the seventh day of the week. And you remember on that seventh day of creation, God and man were in perfect harmony together, and God and man and man and man were in perfect harmony together. And God and humanity were going to work together to build a good, beautiful, flourishing, creative planet. 
And that's what the seventh day of creation symbolizes. So you meet with other Jews every seven days to think that through. And your entire year, your annual cycle is actually full of festivals and holidays where you remember all of the times that God has saved your people specifically. You have Passover where you think about God saving your people from the Egyptians. And you have Hanukkah where you think about God saving the Maccabees. And you have Purim where you think about God saving uh, the Jews through the hand of Esther from the Medo-Persians. And you have festival after festival that you go to every single year where you remember God has saved our people. And because you're all first century Jews, this is the life you're living, you have smart brains that have memorized lots of scripture. Unlike me, I'm a first 21st century person, so my brain has been fried on YouTube and Twitter, and I can't remember anything. But you guys are all smart because you're first century Jews, so you have lots of scripture in your bones, memorized. Lots of parts of the Torah and poems from Isaiah. Poems like Isaiah 52, that says one day Yahweh will roll up his sleeves and he will bear his strong arms. And the point of the poem is the idea, it's like Yahweh's getting ready for a fight. He's showing off his biceps. Yahweh will roll up his sleeves and bear his strong arms and he will push down the tower of the oppressors and he will build up the city of Zion. How blessed are the feet of the ones who bring the good news of salvation to the people of Zion. And you have that poem in you and you sing it with other Jews regularly. You are hoping for the day when God one day brings salvation to Israel. But salvation for a first century Jew isn't just getting out of hell one day on judgment day. Salvation is more than that. Salvation is God throwing off the oppressive Roman empires, pushing back darkness, gathering his faithful Jews from all around the world, being with them, starting a good nation to, to be a light to the world and be productive and creative and flourish just like Adam and Eve were supposed to be on day seven. That's the hope of salvation that you have in you. And you think about that as you go to work as a slave on your family farm. This is the, all of our situations as first century Jews. Then you hear about this strange, young, rambunctious rabbi, Yeshua ben Yosef, Jesus' son of Nazareth, this weird rabbi who's walking around the lake collecting big crowds of people. And you've heard weird rumors that this rabbi can do miracles, like he raised a widow's son from the dead and he can push back demons and threaten darkness. And so a lot of people go to hear this young charismatic rabbi give his sermons and you have a weekend off or something. So you're going to go hear Yeshua ben Yosef speak and you get to the crowd and there's a big giant crowd and you don't really know what he looks like. He's somewhere up at the front because you couldn't Google or Facebook him beforehand. You don't know what anyone looks like. But you think he's up there at the front. Everyone's around him. And then... He opens his mouth and he begins to speak. Here's a question. What does Jesus say when he begins to speak? If you're in this situation with me, you've really thought through first century Judaism, what is the summary of Jesus' message that he says? Well, luckily, we don't have to come up with summaries of Jesus' message. The Gospels have done it for us. This is what Pastor Brian led, read last week. This is Luke's summary of Jesus' message. Soon afterward, Jesus went throughout all the cities and all of the villages proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand. The summary of Jesus' message isn't just love your neighbor. Jesus said love your neighbor a lot, but that doesn't get anyone crucified. Love your neighbor is a kingdom ethic within this announcement, the great cosmic announcement that the kingdom of God is at hand. Big crowds come to Jesus and his big announcement is the kingdom of God. Remember when Yahweh said he was going to bear his strong biceps and push back darkness and break into the world? That's happening. The kingdom of God is here. That's Jesus' opening line. The kingdom of God is at hand. And so if you're in this crowd and you hear Jesus say that, 
That rings in your ears a little differently than when we 21st century people hear Jesus say the kingdom of God is at hand. That is a frenetic, frenzying, energetic, electrical statement for first century Jews. And if you were in the crowd, you can assume that the crowd was not like quiet and, com and compliant and going, hmm, very good point, Jesus. Sometimes I think we read that the crowds in the Bible are like us at church where they're like taking notes and going, hmm, Mm, very nice. First century crowds are a riotous group, right? We know about that just from reading, but also in the Gospel of Luke and in the book of Acts, we know what crowds are like. They're energetic and shouting and talking back. They would not have been like us all just looking at Jesus going, ah, very nice point, Jesus. If he has this big crowd around him and he says the kingdom of God is at hand, you can imagine the energy and the electricity of everything that's going on. Okay, are you still with me? You're first century Jews. You hear him say this. And then now we get to the parable. We've built ourselves up to the parable and then Jesus says this to his crowd. Luke 8, 4, and there was a great cow that was gathering and people from town after town came to him and he said this to them in a parable. A sower went out to sow his seed and as he sowed, some fell on a path and it was trampled underfoot and the birds ate it and some fell on a rock and it grew up but it withered away because there was no moisture and some fell on thorns and the thorns grew up and choked it and some fell on good soil and it grew a hundredfold. If you have ears, I hope you hear. Do you feel the letdown of a parable? Do you feel the weirdness and the puzzlement of why he's, why, why would he say that? I think we, if we're raised in church, we're raised around the Bible, Jesus speaks in parables. That's what he does. That's how Jesus talks. That's not normal. That's weird. That's enigmatic. And that's like, frankly, a letdown. That's disappointing to have a big giant crowd full of people who need release from slavery. And Jesus says, the kingdom of God is at hand. And then he says, here's the mystery. It's like a sower was sowing some seed and some was on a path and some was on rocks and some was on a thorn and some on good soil. I hope you hear. It's weird and it's a letdown and it's strange. And we don't hear that because we're 21st century people. But I think if you're there in the crowd, you, you, you would feel the puzzle of what the heck did he just say? But then he explains why he does this. Jesus explains why he talks in these weird, disappointing parables. He says, to, uh, so his disciples came up and they asked him what is meant by the parables. And he said, well, to you, it has been given to know this, the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others, they are in parables so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. And that's a quote from Isaiah. Jesus says, I speak in parables because if you're here, if you're in the crowd, if you're listening to me, to let me set the agenda of what the kingdom is like. If you're going to let me tell you what the kingdom of God is like, then if you look into these stories, if you have ears to hear, you will see a beautiful mystery of what it really looks like when God becomes king. You will see a beautiful picture in these stories of what it really looks like when Yahweh bears his arm and takes back his rebellious planet. But if you're here because you already know what the kingdom of God should look like, if you already think you know what it looks like when God becomes king, you're going to hear this parable and go, that's weird, and walk away. He's telling parables to separate the people who already think they know what the kingdom of God is like and how it should look like from the people who are here to let Jesus tell them what the kingdom of God is like. It's a purposeful letdown for people who already think they know what they want. And Jesus is saying, no, I'm going to tell you the mysteries. And if you have ears to hear, look into these stories and you will see a beautiful reality, an unexpected picture of what it looks like when God becomes king. And then he goes on to explain the parable to his disciples. He says, now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God, and the ones on the path, they are those who have heard. 
But then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock, they are those who when they hear the word, they receive it at first with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while, but in a time of testing fall away. And as for that that fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and the riches and the pleasures of life and the fruit does not mature. And as for that in the good soil, they are those who hearing the word of God hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. This is the word of God for the people of God. So Jesus says, he builds everyone up and then he tells them this enigmatic parable and half the crowd says, that's dumb. I already know what the kingdom is like. I'm not going to look into that. But then other people in the crowd say, there is something there. I'm going to let Jesus tell me what the kingdom is like. And when they look in, they find this beautiful mystery. So now I'm going to summarize the parable. I'm going to summarize the mystery. I said I want to set it up, read it, and then summarize it. And here is my summary of the secret, the not-so-secret secret. Here is my summary of the mystery of the parable in the parable of the sower. The kingdom of God breaks into reality, breaks into the world by meek people telling a story. The kingdom of God breaks into the world when meek people tell a story. That's the mystery of the sower. Remember, meek people was from Jesus' last sermon. Jesus' last big sermon, he says, blessed are the meek, they will inherit the earth. Meek people own the earth. And he says, um, blessed are the people who are hungry for justice. The hungry for justice people, they will get justice in the kingdom. Theirs is the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, blessed are the quick to forgive people. The quick to forgive people are the people who will be forgiven and brought into the kingdom of God. Blessed are the meek and the hungry for justice and the quick to forgive people. Theirs is the kingdom of God. And when those people go around and tell a story about Jesus, that is when the cosmic kingdom of God sovereignly breaks into reality and takes back parts of a rebellious world for God. The mystery of the kingdom is that the kingdom of God really is breaking in, but it breaks in through meek kingdom people telling a story about Jesus. N.T. Wright says, when other kingdoms want to grow, they send in the tanks. When Jesus wants to grow, he sends in the meek. Um, this week, I happened to come across this article that from Kevin Van Hooser, who's a professor at Trinity. He's awesome. And I happened to come across this article by Van Hooser about the parable of the sower, which happens to me all the time when I'm studying or meditating on a text to teach it or preach it. I just happen to come across an article or a podcast or something that talks about it. But So it happened again, and I happened to come across an article that was speaking about the sower and Van Hooser, ever the wordsmith, he says the secret of the parable is that when other kingdoms want to spread, they send out soldiers. When Jesus wants to spread, he sends out storytellers. So we have very good wordsmithing theologians. Other kingdoms spread with tanks, but we spread with the meek. Other kingdoms spread with soldiers, but we spread with storytellers. The secret of the kingdom is that the kingdom of God really is breaking into reality, but it happens when meek people tell stories. Now, I think we can go in maybe a little bit more deeply with this, um, if we put back on our first century shoes. So everyone get back in your first century character, first century Jewish character. If you as first century Jews hear the phrase, a spreading kingdom, a picture comes to mind. You know what it looks like when a kingdom spreads because there's only one kingdom and we all know what it looks like when it spreads. The kingdom is the Roman Empire. And we all know what it looks like when Caesar's empire grows. And the picture looks something like this. This is a painting um, of Caesar taking over a town. So we have lots of descriptions of what happens when Caesar spreads his kingdom and comes into a town and takes it over. And this is a painting 
of, it's a reconstruction, uh, a rendering of some of those descriptions we have. I'm sorry I, paint, I use so many paintings in the sermon for people who are online, but if you're listening to this in audio right now, pause the sermon and go Google 1899 Caesar Gothic Wars and you'll see this painting. You'll know it's this one because there's a guy with an epic mustache. Okay, so go look at that, audio people, then come back and unpause the sermon. Okay, so this is a rendering of what it looks like when Caesar takes over a town. What happens is, first of all, his army goes in and beats the oppression. Then there are piles of dead bodies back here, and there are piles of weapons on the ground. Then Caesar, on his throne, is paraded through the streets. Because there's a new king, and this is your new king. The kingdom has spread, and it took over your area. This is the king. Then Caesar is seated at the head of the city, and his governorial officials are behind him. And then all of the people who have survived, who just live in the town or survivors of the battle, they are paraded before Caesar. And if, if you don't bow the knee to Caesar, if you don't say Caesar Curios, Caesar is Lord, if you don't say Caesar is Lord, then you get bound and beaten and maybe beheaded or turned into a slave. And that's what's going on with this guy. He's bound and beaten because he's bad soil. We know what happens to bad soil. Caesar will beat you and cut your head off or turn you into a slave. This is what it looks like when a kingdom spreads. We've all seen this picture if you're a first century Jew. And before we start saying that was the first century, but now kingdoms today are much more humane, this is how all kingdoms spread. Kingdoms of the earth grow through violence and debt and manipulation and strong arming political and economic and religious kingdoms. This is how the kingdoms of this world spread. It may not be so overt as Caesar, a clearly strong arm king, but the kingdoms of this world grow through violence or debt or strong arming. But Jesus says, my kingdom is spreading and this is what it looks like. And so here is Van Gogh's painting of the sower. And Katie got to see this live one time. And this is Van Gogh's painting of what it looks, of the parable of the sower. Of, the, of what it looks like when a sower just indiscriminately sows seed. He's strolling through a field as the sun is coming up and giving light to everything and some of the seed falls on the path and some of it falls on the soil. This is what it looks like when Jesus' kingdom spreads. A sower walking through a field, sprinkling some seeds, some grows on the path, some on, some on the field. And it's just radically opposite from what spreading the kingdom looks like in other kingdoms. So I think now that we've kind of crystallized the idea of what it looks like, what the, par- what the uh, secret of this parable is. The secret of this parable is Jesus' kingdom grows when meek people tell stories. I think we can look back at the four soils that Jesus mentioned. Jesus says when meek people go out, when kingdom people go out and tell this story, when they scatter the seed, there are responses that you're going to get. One of the responses is just cold-hearted rejection. People are going to say, nope, that's not true. God doesn't exist or God did not become king through a crucified Jew. That doesn't make sense. God is not king when a, when a Jewish rabbi got crucified. But the secret of the parable, the mystery of the story, isn't that that kind of person exists. The mystery of the parable is the response of the sower to love and pray for that person. I'm just going to love and pray for you. The secret of every other kingdom is if there's cold-hearted rejection of the kingdom, you get put down, violence or debt or manipulation. The secret of our kingdom is when we meet cold-hearted rejection, you say, yeah, you're a human made in the image of God. Grace and peace be with you. I'm going to love you and pray for you. That's the secret of the parable. But there's another response. Jesus says, will come. Sometimes people will immediately accept the kingdom but it will be followed by a falling away because of trials. This is the rocky soil. Some people will say, yeah, Jesus' kingdom sounds nice. I'll join Jesus' kingdom. 
Jesus Korios, Jesus is Lord. But then the sun comes out and it shrivels all of the things they cared about. Their money or their career or their family or their religious uprightness. And when those things get questioned, they walk away from Jesus because really they came into Jesus' kingdom in the first place so he could protect those things. But when those things wither up, they walk away from Jesus. But the secret of the kingdom, the mystery of the parable, isn't that that kind of person exists. The secret is the response of the sower. I'm going to love you and pray for you. You're a human made in the image of God. Grace and peace to you. And one day I hope you see that the beauty and the treasure of our kingdom is Jesus, not the other things you wanted Jesus to protect. And then there's a, there's a third kind of soil Jesus mentions. He says, sometimes people will have immediate acceptance of the kingdom, but they, um, they end up walking away because other kingdoms look more attractive. I'll walk with Jesus for a little bit, but, you know, eventually secularism looks really attractive. In secularism, they don't have a moral straitjacket. You can do whatever with your body you want. In secularism, you can sleep with whoever you want. You can drink and smoke however much, whatever you want over there. Secularism looks really nice. But the secret of the kingdom, the mystery of the parable, isn't that that kind of person exists. The mystery of the kingdom is the response of the sower. You're a human made in the image of God. Grace and peace to you. I'm going to love you and pray for you. And I hope you one day see that those other kingdoms are ultimately bringing you death. This is the kingdom of life. But then Jesus says there is a fourth response. When meek people sow the seed, sometimes you will meet good soil which are people who hear this story and it changes them top to bottom. Their full person is changed and now everything about them identifies with Jesus and they really do from their heart say, Jesus Corias, Jesus is Lord. And then everything that comes out of them is different. The words that come out of their mouth, their actions they, they do, their decisions, their priorities, everything changes and all of the fruit they produce, what comes out of their life is radically different. Not because of violence or manipulation or debt or coercion, but because you told them a story. The secret of the kingdom is that sometimes the kingdom spreads when you tell a story and people's life changes top to bottom. That's the mystery of the kingdom. Now, um, before I go, before we close, I want to point out that there are, I think, a couple ways in which we all, myself included, all of us, are actually kind of quick to disbelieve this parable. Or we are quick to be members of the crowd who go, uh, yeah, that's nice. I wanted a big sermon, Jesus, about the coming into the kingdom and you told me a weird parable. I already know how the kingdom is supposed to work. We can all sometimes be the people who are slow to hear in a couple ways. So I want to talk about that real quick. I think there are a couple ways we secretly disbelieve Jesus. One is to say something like this in our hearts. Jesus started a philosophy. He has a lot of good advice, but he didn't really start the inbreaking of the kingdom. You're telling me that the local church, that Christians, is the sovereign inbreaking apocalyptic reality of Yahweh bearing his arms? If that's true, my life needs to look a lot different because my life is still falling apart and I still am full of sin and I'm still not satisfied and my relationships aren't working. You're telling me that the church and people following Jesus is the sovereign arm bearing of Yahweh? It's a philosophy. It's not the real inbreaking of the kingdom of God. If it was, it would look a little different. Jesus, I think I know what the kingdom of God would look like. And of course, we would never say that out loud. But all of us, myself included, can sometimes think that. This is the kingdom of God. This is what it looks like when Yahweh redeems the world. I thought things would be a little better. But then there's another way we can disbelieve Jesus. 
We can disbelieve Jesus by saying, you know what? Yeah, the kingdom did come. He did break in with the sovereign reign of God, but the growth strategy is a little iffy. The growth plan could use some updating. And we might not want to use violence to spread the kingdom, although Christians have done that. And Protestant Christians also, sometimes we pretend that only Catholic crusaders have used violence. Reformed Baptist Protestants have used military violence to spread the kingdom of God. Christians have said, we should grow this kingdom the way Caesar grows his. And that's horrible and wrong. But even if we don't think we should grow the kingdom that way, there's a very like American part of us that thinks we could grow the kingdom just better than meek people telling a story. We have our own ways of upping Jesus's kingdom growth strategy. One might just be through through like church engagement. If we can all rally around a cause big enough or something, that, that is attractive and alluring and that will get people to come. And I have nothing against church programs. I'm all for all the church programs we can do, but there's an American part of us that goes, that's how the kingdom grows. And that's the problem when we mix church engagement with actual kingdom growth. Or there's a, maybe another part of us that says the way the kingdom grows is through political organization. If we can all get a unified voice around these topics and these platforms and these electorates, then we'll really get the kingdom growing. And that's just a very American part of us that says the kingdom of God is not going to grow through meek people telling a story. And again, I'm not against political organization. I am all for political organization, but that's not how the kingdom grows. Or there's a very fleshly part of us that says the kingdom grows through like belligerent arguing. And if you can win in your fight, and, if you, and you're right anyways, and if you can just beat them theologically and prove they're wrong, that's how the kingdom grows. And I'm, I'm not for that one at all. I'm for programs and politics. I'm not for the arguing one at all. But there's a very large part of the American psyche that says the kingdom grows when we can beat them in arguments and prove we're theologically superior. And all of that, all of, all of these heart issues, all of us saying that he started a philosophy, not a kingdom, or all of us thinking we know our own ways to grow the kingdom, it really comes down to a heart issue of we want Jesus' kingdom to be like this kingdom. We want Jesus' kingdom to be a little more like this, to be like Caesar on his throne at the head of the city and have his enemies in chains in front of him. And we might not be so overtly violent, but somewhere down, deep down we think if Jesus is really king, if the kingdom of God is really breaking in, it needs to look a little more like this and a little less like this. A little bit more like Caesar beating the Gothic wars than like a sower scattering some seed. And we wouldn't say it out loud, but there is a part of our hearts that says we know what the kingdom should be like, Jesus. And he says, no, if you have ears to hear, listen. The kingdom of God is here and it breaks into reality when kingdom people, meek, hungry for justice, quick to forgive people, tell a story. If you have ears to hear, that's the good news of the kingdom. Now, here's why it matters. My last point, here's why this really matters. If there's any part of us that thinks the kingdom should grow this way, Caesar's way, then that cycles up and we begin to think the character of the king looks like Caesar. If our kingdom growth strategy is the way Rome grows or the way political parties today grow, or the way economic powerhouses today grow, that cycles up and we begin to think the character of our king is like the character of every other king. But the heart of our king, the character of our king is nothing like those kings. And so because the character of our king is different, this is how his kingdom works. The character of our king, throughout the rest of Luke, we see him take children to himself and 
talk to children and we see him cry with sex workers and we see him touch Roman soldiers and forgive them and we see him bring in Samaritans and women and sinners and he says, these are the people I identify with. That's the character of our king and because that's his heart and it's unlike any other king's heart, his kingdom spreading is unlike any other king. The reason our kingdom spreads differently is because the heart of our king is different. And where do we see the heart of our king most fully displayed is on the cross. On the cross is we, where we see our king lay down all the authority he has. He doesn't use his authority to hurt you. He doesn't use his power to persuade you. He gives up everything he has to bring us into his kingdom. He gives up his own perfect harmony with the Father. He even goes into damnation from the Father, giving up everything he has in order to bring his enemies into his kingdom. This is the heart of our king. And because the cross is the heart of our king, the way our kingdom grows is unlike any other kingdom. So I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up. And I think this is important to remember because when we really get this, that our kingdom grows and unlike any other kingdom, we realize that in connection time, when we're all like just talking about the Bible together here, that, that really is the kingdom strengthening. That's not just us having a Bible study. That's not just theology talk or something. When we all talk to, about the Bible together, that really is the strengthening of the kingdom of God. And it takes ears to hear that and it takes eyes to see that, but I believe it, that when we talk together about Jesus, that is the inbreaking and the strengthening of the kingdom. I'm going to pray real quick. Father, thank you for your character. Thank you for your heart and who you are. We see your heart displayed at the cross. We see a king who lays down everything he has to save those who don't deserve it. And because your heart is so different and so attractive and lovely, the way your kingdom works is so different and attractive and lovely. And I pray you give us eyes to see and ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen.